Good morning to you. Good to see you today. Our sermon text is in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2. Go ahead and turn there and go to the middle of your Bible and go to the right, and you should hit it. It's not a big book, 13 chapters. Nehemiah chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 9 through 20. Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 9. Let's pray before we start, and please stand. Let's, let's stand and pray this morning. So Father, we do just, um, just still our souls before you here. Thank you, Father, that um, you are God of heaven and earth, all-powerful, almighty. You can do all things. Nothing ever thwarts your plan. Nothing ever frustrates you. All-powerful God, just acknowledge that all we have to offer you is weakness, helplessness, need. It's all we have. We just still our soul. Psalm 25 tells us to lift up our souls to you. So Lord God, we just lift up our souls to you now. Lord God of the universe. Our empty souls needing to be filled by you. Hungry souls needing to be fed. Thirsty souls needing, needing water. We just need you, Father. Weak and needy. Needing you. Needing your strength. Needing your grace. Father, we do trust that you, you work through your inspired word, that you, 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 you breathe this word out, caused it to be written down by, by men. Father, it's like no other book, and you work through it, and you engage our affections through it by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you change us. And that's what we need, Father. We need you to engage our affections. I pray, Father, right now. Lord, that you'd stir us up, stir up our affections. You lift our eyes under the hills where you are. Father, you'd cause us to be, to, to feel our hunger. You'd cause us to feel our desperation. So easy to say that uh, like a deer pants for the water, so we pant for you and we don't feel that at all. So Lord God, I just pray right now you'd cause us to pant for you. You'd cause us to pant for living water. You'd, you'd, you'd shake off all of the things, Lord, right now that would cause us to be slumber, cause us to slumber and be slothful and be sleepy. And you would stir our hearts this morning, Father. I ask that you would give the gift of faith, that you would spark faith in our hearts, that we might believe in things right now that we cannot see. I pray, Father, you'd help us to believe in Jesus even though we don't see him now and we would rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Father, help us, we pray. We just ask for your help. We believe you are a God who helps those who look to you in humility and in brokenness and we look to you now and ask for your help. Father, we have not arrived here. We need you today. We need your grace today, Lord God. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would quarry us deep and fill us today. You prune us deep, Father, and fill us with your gracious Holy Spirit that we might be filled with the sap of your Spirit and bear the fruits of the Holy Spirit in all that we do. Help us, Lord, we pray. And we thank you for it and trust that you will. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please be seated. Nehemiah 2.9, then I came to the governors of the province. Let me pause for a second. I actually was planning to set this up for a second. Uh, I started a series uh, a couple weeks ago on the book of Nehemiah, just to remind you a little bit where we are here in this book. Before Nehemiah was ever born, uh, the Jews, because of their sins against God, they were taken into exile in Babylon, which uh, later became Persia. 
but after 70 years there in exile, God moved upon the heart of the king of Persia, Cyrus, and he then wrote a decree that the people of Israel should return uh, to Jerusalem. And at the start of the book of Nehemiah, a couple waves of Jewish exiles have already returned to Jerusalem, but Nehemiah, along with many other Jews, he is still in exile in Persia. Nehemiah hears in chapter 1 of this book that the Jews back in Jerusalem are in great trouble and shame. He, 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 the, the walls of the city still destroyed there in Jerusalem. He, he weeps over it. He prays and fasts for months. And then at the start of chapter 2, God moves upon the heart of the current king there in Persia, Artaxerxes, who then said that Nehemiah could lead the final wave of exiles back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall there. Artaxerxes even gave Nehemiah uh, official papers and a military escort. He he gave Nehemiah papers to get lumber uh, to accomplish the the building project there in Jerusalem. And, And Nehemiah right here is now arriving in Jerusalem. So let's go ahead and read read it now. Nehemiah 2 9. Then I came, Nehemiah says, to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we as servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Amen. So Nehemiah has finally arrived here in Jerusalem to build this wall around the city. But but here's the critical thing that we all need to understand about this man, Nehemiah. He didn't ultimately go to Jerusalem just to build a wall. No, Nehemiah ultimately went to Jerusalem to help the people. The wall was just a means to an end. The people were in great trouble and shame. And one of the major reasons, they had no wall of protection around the city. They, they, they had no wall of safety. And it left the people open to reproach, open to attack from surrounding enemies. So Nehemiah went to build a wall in order to help the people. In verse 10 there, Nehemiah's enemies knew that he had come to seek the welfare of the people. He didn't ultimately make this trip just to build a wall. Nehemiah had been called by God to seek the welfare of the people there. To work for the good of the people. And Nehemiah, therefore, is a sort of example for believers. Because believers, Christians... Similar to Nehemiah, 
We have also been called by God to seek the welfare of other people. If you're a Christian today, you're trusting in and you're following Christ in faith, then you have been called by God to seek the eternal welfare of other people. You've been called by God to work for the eternal good of other people. Matthew 28, Jesus tells us to make disciples. Ephesians 4, we're called to do the work of the ministry. God has called every believer here to work, to bring unbelievers to faith in Christ and to bring believers to maturity in Christ. We've been called to seek the eternal welfare of other people. And we can therefore learn some simple lessons from Nehemiah here. Many of these Old Testament characters, they were put in the Old Testament, one reason as examples for us, so that we might learn from them. We can learn from Nehemiah here. What does seeking the welfare of other people entail? What is involved when it comes to seeking the welfare of other people? We can look to Nehemiah. And in this passage here, I think we can see that seeking the welfare of others involves four things. And the first thing I think we see here, I believe, seeing the welfare of, seeking the welfare of others involves planning. Nehemiah here is seeking the welfare of these people living in Jerusalem. He wants to help these people. So what does he do? He makes some plans to help these people. To build a wall that will help them. When Nehemiah arrives arrives in Jerusalem here, this is probably the first time in his entire life he's ever seen the place. He was probably born and raised in exile. And there it is now as he crests probably the hill around the Mount of Olives. He sees Jerusalem, the great city of God lying before him in shambles. And verse 12 says that Nehemiah was then there for three days before he did anything. Probably resting from a 900 mile journey, not in a car, uh, but in some chariot of some sort. And knowing Nehemiah, probably praying, thanking God for a safe journey, asking God for help now that he was in Jerusalem. And after those three days, verse 12 says that he then arose at night, not wanting to be seen by anybody in there in the city, except for a few men he took with him. The only animal was the one on which he rode, maybe a mule. He then rode out of the city and began to expect, in, inspect the walls. He went out through the valley gate, which was on the southwestern side of Jerusalem. He then traveled around the southern tip, passing all of these other gates and pools. He says in verse 14 that when he got to the king's pool, which was up around the eastern side of Jerusalem, which overlooked the Kidron Valley, Mount of Olives on the other side, there was no room for his animal, he said. Maybe too much rubble on the steep hillside on the eastern side of Jerusalem. So he apparently moved down into the valley, continued up the eastern side. And at some point, he then turned around and began to retrace his steps. Maybe he'd seen everything he needed to see at that point. Maybe he couldn't go any further because of the rubble. And he heads back around the southern tip, back around to the side, back in through the valley gate. When Nehemiah was back in Persia, he went recently, he went from being a cupbearer for the king to a construction worker. And the first thing that any good construction worker does is go out and inspect the work site. You get the lay of the land. You, get, you, you, you assess the situation. You see what needs to be done and you then make some plans. And that was Nehemiah here, I believe, inspecting this work site and making some plans. Nehemiah was a planner. We've already seen him plan here in this book. When, when he spoke with the king back in Persia, he knew instantly how long he would be gone in Jerusalem. He knew that he needed papers to get past the governors in order to build there. He knew he needed number, lumber for the job, and he even knew the name of the lumberman in Jerusalem, a Asaph. That man had prepared for this job from afar, and now that he's actually there, seeing it up close and personal, he's inspecting, he's making more plans here, probably modifying the plans that he originally made there in 
Jerusalem. He's looking around. Can you just imagine Nehemiah? He's pictured it from afar. And now here he is. Wow, that king's gate is a mess. You can't get a mule past this thing. A lot of work. Write that down to clear the king's gate. And man, that dung gate... (laughs) that thing looks like dung man it's gonna take a lot of work to get that thing repaired this man was he was a planner he was a prayer for sure nehemiah had already prayed a ton for this building project here in jerusalem but nehemiah was also a planner and you know what god intends for those two things to go together you pray and you plan in the Christian life. Some people seem to think that all you need to do in this life is pray for things to happen and that's it. You just pray for a wall and man, just trust that God will do it. You don't need a plan for it. If God wants it, he'll do it somehow. Others, however, seem to think that all you need to do is plan. If you want a wall built, you just sit down and plan it and get up and start working. You don't pray for the wall, you just plan. It's either or. You either pray or you plan, but it's not intended to be an either or. It's intended to be a both and. You both pray and you plan. Nehemiah had prayed hard for this wall in Jerusalem, and he has now planned hard for this wall. And man, until this, until Nehemiah's plans are fully ready here, he does not want anybody to know what he is doing. It says in verse 12, I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Nehemiah is seeking the welfare of these people in Jerusalem. And the first thing he does in his effort to help them is make some plans to help them. He sits down and prays to help them, but he also plans to help them. And listen, we can learn something there, I believe. I think that is probably an example for us. Those of us who are believers, we, like Nehemiah, we have also been called by God to seek the welfare of other people. God has called us to seek the eternal welfare of other people. He's called us to make disciples. He's called us to do the work of the ministry. He's called us to work. He's called us to task, to work. You've been called to Christ so that you might then work to bring unbelievers to faith in Christ and other believers to maturity in Christ. And listen, seeking the welfare of others, it involves planning. You make some plans to help others eternally. Do you want to help some unbelieving neighbors come to Christ? Do you want to help your believing friends come to maturity in Christ? Do you right now seek the eternal good of some people around you? Friends, family members, neighbors, co-workers. Then make some plans to help them. Make some plans to help them. Pray for it. Yes, Pray that God will help them. Pray that God will bring them to faith in Christ and bring them to maturity in Christ. But also make some intentional plans to help them. Ask God for some plans. What can I do now, Father, to help these people eternally? And then listen to Him. Spend some time before Him and listen to Him. Listen and wait for God to give you some plans. God can direct you in prayer and through His Word, He can direct you. God had put something specific into the heart of Nehemiah here. Help those people by building a wall. And listen to me, that God is not dead. He does the same thing today that He did back then. God can very easily now drop specific plans in your heart, ways that you can help people by doing specific things. Ask God for it. Pray for it. Look to Him for it. And it's going to be different for every person. 
Do you want to help your kids eternally? Do you want to help your neighbor eternally? Well, the plans God gives you will be different for your neighbors than for your kids. Maybe God will direct you to invite your unbelieving neighbor to study the Bible with you and a couple other believers. Or maybe God will direct you to invite that neighbor into your life group where he or she can taste the fellowship in your group. Maybe for a believing friend that, that you're, you're praying for and you're, and you're looking to, to, to help. Maybe God will direct you to speak a particular word of encouragement to that brother or sister. Maybe God will direct you to go and pray for that brother or sister. What's going on, brother? Let me pray for you today. Maybe God will direct you to ask that brother to work on some project with you just so you can fellowship together. Ask God for specific plans, things you can do to to seek the eternal welfare of the people around you. Is your life group right now seeking the eternal welfare of a certain group of unbelievers working to bring them to Christ for, for their eternal good? Pray that God will help them eternally. Pray that God will bring them to Christ, yes, but then ask God to show you specific plans, things that you can do in an effort to lead them to Christ. My life group will soon be putting the names of unbelievers that we are connected with on sheets of paper, one name per sheet, and we will then pray over each name. We will try to listen to what the Spirit might prompt us to do. We will make plans, write down specific things that we think the Lord is telling us to do in an effort to reach those people. Man, don't just sit around and wait for things. Be proactive and prayerfully plan some specific things you can do. Disciple making takes planning. It takes planning. Jesus compared mission to harvesting a field. And you don't harvest a field by just wandering aimlessly into the field and hoping that the crop ends up in your barn. No, you make plans to harvest the field. It looks ripe in that corner. We will start there. We will then work our way across this way. We will end up over here. Harvesting takes planning. You don't bring the lost to Christ without planning. You don't mature your brothers and sisters without some sort of planning. Listen, we plan for everything else in this life. You know, this summer, my family and I will hopefully take another one of our yearly trips to Cape Cod where I just grew up as a kid going uh, for vacation. And listen, we will plan the dickens out of that vacation. I can tell you that, man. I will not get in the car until that trip is planned. We will plan, we will plan the clothes we take. We will plan the hotels. We will plan the movies we take in the car so my kids don't go crazy. I will probably sit down before the trip and plan the potty stops that we will take along the way. (laughs) We will plan that trip and we plan for a zillion other things we do in this life. We plan our schooling, plan our kids schooling. We, We plan to get married. We plan our retirement. We plan for everything. But then when it comes to one of the most important things of all, the eternal welfare of others, we often do very little, if any, intentional planning. Listen, a lot of people act like it's a sin to plan. You have a disciple-making plan? That's not the Holy Spirit. Just go with it. That's too programmatic. Just pray about it. If God wants you to do something, well, He'll just bring it your way, open the door, and make it happen. But you know what happens then? You know what happens when we never make specific plans for making disciples, we typically do very little. We typically do very, very, very little of intentional disciple making. You know, people made fun of D.L. Moody's disciple making plan, and he said, Well, I, I like the way I do it better than the way they don't do it. Seeking the eternal welfare of others. It involves planning. It's one thing we can see here. The second thing I think we can see here 
Seeking the welfare of others involves motivating, <laughs> exhorting people at times, urging people, a call to action at times. Man, Nehemiah, he, he's seeking the welfare of these people living in trouble and shame. He's wanting to help them. And one thing he does here to help them when the time is right, he tells them to get up and do something. Motivating, exhorting, urging, a call to action. It is time, people, to get up and move. Look at verse 17. I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And man, that right there. I don't think we probably catch the intensity there that Nehemiah probably had. That right there, that is a call to action. He's motivating these people for their good. Motivating them, calling them to action for their good. Calling them to rise and build. And <laughs> these people, you, you, you sit and think about these people. They, they probably needed some serious motivation at this point in time. Listen, the Jews, they had been back there in Jerusalem for some 80 years now, and they still didn't have a wall around the city. And they had tried some 20 years earlier. Ezra chapter 4, they tried to build the walls, but the enemies of the Jews rose up and put it to a stop. They got nowhere with this wall. And man, they look at this thing, this wall, and you know, it's not like they just needed to build a little white picket fence around a little yard here. No, this city was one to two miles in circumference. It's a big wall. It needed to be at least 20 feet high, multiple feet wide. And the stones, which were now lying in the rubble, were massive. Probably would have required some machinery of some sort to move them. Man, I think the people here, this wall, seemed like an impossible project to these people. A serious lethargy after 80 years. A serious apathy in them at this point. We can not do it. J.I. Packer says they were in a virtual coma, needing some serious motivation. You know, lots of great motivators in history. Winston Churchill was maybe one of the best, if you ever read some of Winston Churchill. World War II, France was falling at the time. Britain's power was at its lowest ebb. Uh, giving in for the Britons seemed like the only option and Churchill, <laughs> he rallied the troops, quote, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. What is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror, victory however long and hard the road may be. We shall fight on the beaches, fight on the landing grounds, fight in the fields, fight in the hills. We shall never Surrender. And man, Nehemiah now rallies these, I think, what would have been comatose troops. And you look at his little rallying cry there, pretty simple, has two little sides to it, I think. On one side, Nehemiah gives them the negatives of their situation. Verse 17, look at the trouble we're in. Look at this place. Look at Jerusalem in ruins. Look at the derision we're suffering. You know, you stop and think about that. I think that was probably intended by Nehemiah to be a very gracious and firm slap in the face. You know, when people have, when they have stared at the same mess for years, 
they often forget it's even there. You know the grubby kid stains on your walls, which, which used to, to bother you, but now they've been there so long you don't even notice until someone comes in from the outside and points them out. You know, this rubble to these people had probably just become a way of life. I mean, they probably had made walking paths around the piles. They had learned how to function here to some degree in their trouble and shame and ruins and derision and Nehemiah here. <laughs> I think he throws the proverbial water in the face. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. Look around you. Look at this place, the trouble, the ruins, the derision. This city is the city of the one true God. And this place is an absolute disgrace. <laughs> but he then quickly adds the positive side of the coin. Verse 18, I then told them of the hand of my God that was upon me for good. The favor that King Artaxerxes had shown me. I showed them the papers that the king had given me, the papers to rebuild, the papers for the lumber. The hand of God is upon me. Can you see it? Yes, we're in trouble here. Derision, disgrace, but God is for us. And if God is for us, who can, who can stand against us? God will build these walls. But it will take all of us to build it. It's time to rise and build. It's time to rise and build. And when you consider what their situation probably was at this time, their response is nothing short of miraculous. You look at the end of verse 18, and they said, let us rise. Let, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. That's amazing. Just a few words from Nehemiah there. And through his motivating words, it seems that God moved upon the people. He woke them up from a coma. He, sp he sparked a newborn faith in their hearts. And they heeded that call to action. Seeking the welfare of other people, at times it involves motivating. Exhortation, urging, a strong and loving and firm call to action. When you're working for the good of other people, there is a time to tell them to get up and move. Are you seeking right now the eternal welfare of certain unbelievers? Wanting to help them eternally? Well, at some point in time, they will need someone to look at them and motivate them. An exhortation, an urging, a call to action. It's time to get up and move. Tell them first what Christ has done for them. His life, death, and resurrection. How much Christ loves them. Tell them about the, the forgiveness that Christ now freely offers to them. But at some point, someone will need to call that person to action. That, that, that is part of the gospel. A call to action. If you took the evangelism class in the fall, you know three parts of the gospel message. One, identity. You tell people who Christ is. Two, mission. You tell people what Christ has come to do. And three, call. You tell them what Christ now calls them to do. And what does Christ call an unbeliever to do? Repent, believe, and follow. You repent of your sin. You put your faith in Christ. And you follow Christ. A call to action 
to unbelievers. And when an unbeliever hears all those parts of the gospel message somehow, including that motivating call to action, if God is ready to bring that person into his kingdom, God will then work through your words, wake that person up from a coma of sin and death, spark a newborn faith in that person's heart, and that person will supernaturally rise and heed the call and follow Christ. There's a time to motivate unbelievers. There's a time to motivate believers, too. Now, I know that's hard for us to understand in our Minnesota nice culture. (laughs) Don't tell me. Don't tell me. There is a time, even in Minnesota, to call believers to action. Time to look a fellow believer in the eye with all the grace and love of Christ say it's time to get up and move. Hebrews 11.24, Thomas hit it in the welcome. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another every day. Listen, Christians are not saved by good works, but they are saved, we are saved for good works. (laughs) And we must at times stir one another up to love and good works. What does that sound like? I don't know. Thank you. Thank you, brother, for confessing that sin. I appreciate, man, thank you for walking in the light with me. And man, in Christ Jesus, bro, you are forgiven. Praise God for that. Now get up and move. Don't wallow in it. You're not reading your Bible, brother, man. Well, God doesn't love us on the basis of our Bible reading. He loves us simply on the basis of Christ Jesus. You are loved, brother. Now let's get up and go. You tell me how I can encourage you to read the Word. Man, you're having a good time in your life group, you and the other people in your life group. You're having some sweet fellowship there with the other believers. Man, that is fantastic. I pray that just gets richer and richer and richer. Now, get up and move. Because there are tons of lost people sitting right outside your door. There is a time. Seeking the eternal welfare of other people at times involves motivating exhortation, urging, a loving, gracious call to action. Paul says uh, to the Thessalonians, you remember how I was like a father to children with you. And I exhorted you. And I encouraged you. And I charged you to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. A father to children. Exhorting, encouraging, charging. That's planning. We see motivating now with Nehemiah. And the third thing here, seeking the welfare of others. It involves work. It involves work. Hard work at times. You know, one thing you will see repeatedly in the book of Nehemiah, one thing you will see from this man, Nehemiah, this Man works hard. He's seeking the welfare of these people. He he wants to help them. So what does he do? Blood, sweat, and tears. He rolls up his sleeves and he labors for them. He labors for them. He labors for them. He labors for them. Did you catch his words when he calls these people to work? Man, I love it. You gotta love Nehemiah. He doesn't say, you will rise and build. No, he says, we will rise and build. Look at verse 17. I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Nehemiah, seeking the good of these people, the welfare of these people, he rolls up his sleeves and he works. And please hear me. 
If you are right now desiring the eternal welfare of some people around you, if you want to see your neighbors come to faith in Christ, you want to see your fellow believers, you want to see your kids maybe come to maturity in Christ, can I encourage you? Roll up your sleeves. Roll up your sleeves and work by the grace of God. Paul says in Colossians 1.29 that he, in order to present everyone mature in Christ, he toiled. He toiled, struggling with the energy that God worked in him. He toiled and struggled to present people mature in Christ. The Greek words there indicate a very hard mental and physical and spiritual exertion from Paul. Even an agony. When he says he struggled to see people raised up to maturity in Christ, the Greek word is agonizomai. The Greek word from which we get the word agonize. He agonized. Man, seeking the eternal welfare of other people, it involves work. It just does. Making disciples of unbelievers and believers, it takes labor. There is no other way to get there. There is no other way to make disciples and present people mature in Christ. We can talk about, we can talk about making disciples until... The cows come home, we can pray about it, we can plan for it, we can hope for it. But if we will not work for it, we will not get it. We will not get it. There's no cheap way to make disciples. And, and you, you think about it. We work hard at so many things in this life. We work at school. We work in our homes. We work on the job. But when it comes to one of the most important things, the eternal welfare of other people, for a lot of believers in this world, there is simply very little, if any, roll up your sleeves and work for it. Lots of talk, lots of excuses, lots of complaints, but very little just get off your rear end and work for it. That's the Christianity we live in in America. Consumeristic, passive, me first Christianity. And when it comes to working for the welfare of others, there is simply very little. Roll up your sleeves, blood, sweat, and tears, labor. And if we won't work for it, it will not happen. Seeking the eternal welfare of others involves work. We see it right here with Nehemiah. And the final thing we see here, I believe, seeking the welfare of others involves opposition. Nehemiah here, he's seeking the welfare of the people living here in Jerusalem. And the very second that he arrives in Jerusalem to help these people, opposition. The opposition starts here in chapter 2. It will now escalate progressively until the wall is finally built and these people are safe. Look at verse 10. Here's where it starts. Nehemiah just arrived. And verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Those two men there, Sanballat, Tobiah, 
They are like the evil twins here in the book of of Nehemiah. I I didn't see the Austin Powers movies, but I know there is a Dr. Evil and a mini-me. And the the, the Dr. Evil and mini-me right here, they show up here. They will be here uh, throughout the rest of this book. We don't know very much about them. Sanballat was a Horonite, Nehemiah says. So he came from Beth Horon, north of Jerusalem. Historical documents tell us that he was the governor over Samaria, the, the, the province just north of Jerusalem. Nehemiah calls Tobiah the Ammonite servant, which might mean that Tobiah was serving Sanballat in some way, maybe also an official there in Samaria, north of Jerusalem. And these guys resist Nehemiah from day one. They do not want Nehemiah to build this wall. They do not want Nehemiah to help these people. Greatly displeased that he has come seeking the welfare of those people. We don't know why. Power reasons, maybe. They were upset. Uh, They could have been exerting some power over Jerusalem. They didn't want to lose the power. Could have been uh, financial reasons. They they were maybe uh, profiting off of Jerusalem some way. And if they build the wall, they think they'll they'll lose their their profit. We, We don't know, but an instant opposition here, and it escalates quickly. If you look at verse 19. Nehemiah has now rallied the people to build. They're strengthening their hands for the work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and says, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And now these, there's a triplet of, of evil twins here. This guy, Geshem the Arab. We don't know anything about him uh, from Arabia, obviously. Don't know what his part is here. But all three of these men are now opposing Nehemiah, greatly displeased earlier, and now already lobbing verbal threats and accusations. Accus- Using Nehemiah, you're revolting against King Artaxerxes. You're going to build the wall and revolt. We'll tell him. Intimidation right now. And Nehemiah responds very simply. Uh, Nehemiah doesn't do what I have done too many times. <laughs> when people come against me, I will retaliate back. Nehemiah doesn't do it here, uh, but he is firm. Verse 20, the God of heaven will make us prosper. We will rise and build, and you have no portion, right, or claim in Jerusalem. Back off. But you know, you look at these enemies, and if you're not careful, you get so focused. Sanballat, Tobiah, these guys, and all of a sudden, you you miss the real enemy here. Because the real enemy is not Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem but the powers of darkness behind those men. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we don't ultimately wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The real enemy here in Nehemiah chapter 2 is Satan. He hates the work of God. He hates God's plan of redemption. He knows God is going to rebuild Jerusalem and he will fight against a tooth and nail. He does not like it when anybody seeks the welfare of other people in a genuine and eternal way. The devil and his demons will resist every genuine work of God. They will resist every single time someone works for the eternal welfare of others. They do not want Nehemiah here to work for the welfare of these people. They do not want these walls built. And the powers of darkness now stir up flesh and blood, give them different reasons why this rebuilt wall should irritate them. And they start coming against Nehemiah here from the very second he arrives in Jerusalem. And that's another really good lesson for us. Seeking the eternal welfare of others will always, always, always involve opposition. Always. If you are a believer today, 
The powers of darkness do not want you to actively seek the eternal welfare of other people. They do not want you to actively work to make disciples of unbelievers and your fellow believers. They do not want you to seek the welfare of other people. They will give you all kinds of reasons why you should not be doing that. Whenever we do get serious about that, seeking the eternal welfare of others, beginning to work for their eternal good, the powers of darkness resist. And please listen to me. They do it through flesh and blood. They stir up people who then cause all kinds of problems and get you distracted from the welfare of other people. Powers of darkness stir up unbelievers a lot of times to cause problems. Stir up people outside of the camp. People like Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem. People who suddenly just have all these reasons why they need to bring verbal threats against the church or bring accusations against you as you're trying to make disciples or even maybe bring persecution against you. But listen, the powers of darkness, please hear me on this, they do not just stir up unbelievers. We all, believers included, we all still hold a sinful side inside of us. And the powers of darkness love to stir up the sin within believers. And believers now are suddenly causing all kinds of problems that get the church off track from seeking the eternal welfare of other people. People in the church family. I mean, suddenly you, you, you have traction, you, you, you're working, you're, you're focused on making disciples, and all of a sudden, people suddenly just unhappy and, and just, just grumbling for all kinds of reasons, complaining about this and that, criticizing, gossiping, worried about this, wondering about that, unforgiveness, bitterness, all these little fires inside the camp all of a sudden. Please listen to me. The powers of darkness will try to split your life group. As soon as you get a little traction in your group and you are actively working to make disciples of one another and to make disciples of unbelievers, the powers of darkness will do everything they can to start fires in your group. Stir up the sin within us. Give us reasons why we should grumble against one another and criticize one another. Just the little, little, little things of this life get us distracted. Friction in your group, conflict, infighting, grudges. And please hear me on this. If you're not careful, all you will see at that time is the flesh and blood. That's all you'll see. That's all you'll focus on. That's all you'll you'll, you'll think about is is the flesh and blood in the midst of this conflict. And all of a sudden we've missed the real enemy behind the conflict. They'll do anything they can to oppose believers actively seeking the welfare of other people. I don't think Satan opposes us that much. When we're not actively seeking the welfare of other people. Satan knows you don't wake a sleeping dog. He knows it. And when Christians are are living in passivity, consumeristic lives, going through the motions, just bickering, fighting, just enjoying the Christian clubhouse, not really working all that hard for the eternal welfare of others, Satan doesn't oppose us. You know, you, you, you can say he does. Oh, Satan's really fighting against us today. And we hear that type of stuff all over the place. But listen, if there's not an active energy to actually seek the welfare of other people, Satan backs off. Why would he oppose? Why would he wake the sleeping dog? He doesn't. And man, we need to learn to recognize Satan's schemes. He will oppose when we're actively working for the welfare of others. He'll oppose through flesh and blood. He'll oppose both, both outside from people both outside and inside the camp. He, he may oppose through me at times. We need to recognize his scheme. Stop fighting with flesh and blood. 
Stop fighting with one another. Forgive one another. Love one another. Commit to the unity of the body. Stop bickering over childish things. Back off, Satan. You have no part in this. The God of heaven will make us prosper. We will continue to rise and build. When it comes to seeking the eternal welfare of people, man, we can learn some great lessons here from Nehemiah. Learn a lot from this passage here. What is involved when it comes to seeking the welfare of others? Well, planning, motivating, work, and opposition. Man, I pray God will help us follow Nehemiah's lead here and and seek the welfare of others in those ways. But man, as I've mentioned the past few weeks, if all we take away from this book is be like Nehemiah, all we take away from this book is, hey man, follow his example. If that's all we get out of it, we miss the point because Nehemiah is not ultimately just an example for us to follow. He's ultimately a foreshadowing of Christ who would come after Nehemiah. You know, all the things that Nehemiah does in that passage, all those things, seeking the welfare of those people there. Well, Jesus did all those things too, just on an infinitely bigger scale. Jesus also saw people living in trouble and shame. Ruins, derision, disgrace, namely the human race, living in the trouble and shame of our own sin. And Jesus, he made some intentional plans to help us. An eternal plan of redemption. And Jesus then came to our city. He came to our fallen world. And listen, Jesus came to our city seeking our eternal welfare. And when Jesus got here, you know what he did? He worked for our eternal welfare. Blood, sweat, and tears working for our eternal welfare, groaning, hungry, thirsty, working for our eternal welfare. And man, the opposition against Jesus, it started early. It escalated quickly. Powers of darkness greatly displeased that he had come to seek our welfare. And the powers of darkness opposed him vehemently through human flesh. From the second he was born, the second he set foot on this earth, Herod trying to kill him. When he grew up later, people in his own hometown trying to stone him. Angry mobs then later in his life. But the powers of darkness, not just opposing Jesus through flesh and blood, but opposing Jesus head on. Satanic confrontations head on in the wilderness of temptation. In the garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. The powers of darkness ultimately crushing Jesus on the cross. (laughs) But he rose again. And when he did, he ultimately crushed the powers of darkness. Jesus Christ seeking our eternal welfare. He planned. He worked. He was opposed. And you know what? Jesus now looks at you and me and you know what he does? He motivates A word of exhortation, a word of urging, a call to action. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. All you who are suffering in this city of trouble and shame. Come to me right now and I will give you eternal rest. Repent of your sin. Trust in me. Follow me. Come to me. And you know what? When Jesus is ready... He then wakes us from our spiritual coma to sin and death. And He sparks a newborn faith in our hearts. And we believe Him. And we heed His call to action and we begin to follow Him. And you know what Jesus then does? He motivates us some more. He says, I love you so much. Now, let's rise and build. Let's rise and build, Christian. I saved you to rise and build. I've empowered you to rise and build. I gifted you to rise and build. Let us now build. He doesn't come to you and say, you will build. No, he says, we will build. 
I will build my church, but I will work through you to do it. All you have is five loaves and two fish. But if you will offer those things to me, if you will bleed and sweat and labor to make disciples and offer your little five loaves and two fish, I will take those in my hands. I will break them. I will bless them. And I will feed the multitudes with them. Let us Rise and build, rise and build, rise and build, rise and build. That is our calling as a church. Rise and build. Make disciples. Jesus says, go now and make disciples. And you know what? I will be with you always working with you when you go to make disciples. I will be there. I will do all of the heavy lifting. My yoke for you is very, very easy. Rise and build by the power of the Holy Spirit. May God help us to hear that motivating, loving, gracious, encouraging charge from the Lord Jesus Christ. And may this church rise and build and begin to plan for the welfare of others and begin to work for the welfare of others. May God help us. May God help us. May God help us. Lord God, the one who commands is the one who empowers We look at making disciples and we would say the same thing that the people of Israel probably said about those walls. It's impossible. We cannot do it. We cannot bring unbelievers to you, Christ. We cannot mature the believers around us. We cannot do it. It is impossible. But we know the one who commands is the one who empowers Lord Jesus, the hand of God the Father is upon you for good. You have all the favor of the God of this universe. You are working with us. And through Christ Jesus, we can do all things. God, I pray right now you would work through your word. You would wake us from a slumber. Macoma, wake us from unbelief. You'd spark faith in our hearts. And we'd say, yes, that can happen. I believe it. I don't know why, but I believe it. Help us, Lord God. Help us, Lord God. Do not let us grow weary in doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not lose heart. Help us, Father, we pray. And we thank you for it, Lord God, in the name of Jesus. Amen.